Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Brant Gardner. He's a Mesoamerican expert, but this time I'm going to have him critique some of the other uh, geography theories like Baja, Meso, or excuse me, Heartland, and Africa, and some others. So we'll even talk about the Middle East geography. So it's going to be a fun conversation. You don't want to miss it. Check it out. Let's shift gears a little bit. I know uh, I was talking to Jonathan Neville lately, or a few few months ago, and he was uh, complaining about the what he called the M2C Citation Cartel. <laughs> that you guys won't pay any attention to the Heartland and and then refuse to even acknowledge they exist. What, what do you have to say about that? Certainly not that we refuse to believe that they exist. Um, you know, that's, that's awfully harsh. Um, I might have there, but... What, what I would say as Mesoamericanists, don't, we don't look at the Book of Mormon against Mesoamerica and try to justify it against somebody else's theory. We're not trying to say, this is good because it's better than that. You know, they had a problem here, but we don't have that problem here. That, that's not what we're concerned with. What we're concerned with is saying, yeah, here's a geography. Once we have the geography, what else does that teach us? And so we're very focused on learning that. Um, they're, they have a different purpose in mind. They have, you know, different interests. The, the few times that we have sort of interacted and said, well, here are some of the things that we see as issues and problems with the geography you're putting forth. They're not very interested in them and tend to dismiss them. Um, so if they're not interested in you know, discussions on that level, they can go build their models and try to do what we're doing here. Uh, so it isn't so much that we you know, don't acknowledge them, we have tried, um, you know, we do see some problems with the geography, but the focus isn't to try to diminish anything else in the Book of Mormon. If somebody else comes up with a good argument, uh, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, I haven't seen any that, that fit the detail and complexity that I see in Mesoamerica. And so I'd much rather spend my time on that than arguing with somebody else over, you know, geography. Do you? I'm not interested. <laughs> Even though you're not interested, <laughs> do you see any? <laughs> do you see any strengths and or weaknesses that you'd like to share with uh, with the Heartland theory? Uh, of the strengths and weaknesses of the Heartland theory. Of the, of the yeah of the Heartland theory. Uh, I think it it has two strengths. One is it. Um, allows people the sort of culturally historical ties to the New York Hill as the Hill Cumorah. Um Without question, that was a theme in, uh, in the early church. People believed that. Um, and the fact that they make a geography that fits that uh, allows them to keep that. That's a strength. Um, it's a strength that it fits the most common reading of certain prophecies about promised land. Uh, I'd probably read those very differently, but they're very much in line with the way they have been traditionally read, and I think that also is a strength. I think the weakness is everything else. Let me give you an example. Um, the last time I remember looking at the Mesoamerican geographic model, you have to find a narrow neck of land. Every Book of Mormon geographer knows you have to find a narrow neck of land. And if I remember correctly, they were looking at a narrow neck of land um, just north of like Buffalo and the Great Lakes. There's a narrow neck that kind of leads up. Fits narrow neck really, really well. Doesn't fit the Book of Mormon text because that narrow neck is northwest of the Hill Cumorah in New York. And so that puts the Hill Cumorah to the southeast of the Narrow Neck. And the text of the Book of Mormon says you have to go north of the Narrow Neck and then east in order to get to Cumorah. So it's 
completely contrary. You've got the wrong narrow neck if that's your narrow neck. And I don't know where you're going to find a narrow neck anywhere south of that. Um, so the narrow neck doesn't work. Distances have a problem. Um, there's no, you know, horses to ride on, so you know, you're on foot traffic. Uh, the one well, thing I, I mentioned that to Jonathan, and he said, yeah, well, you've got rivers, river right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he does river travel. Um, there is an article that I know about and will not mention until it's published, but I've read uh, the draft. And it looks at the idea of river travel. And absolutely, river travel downriver helps. Upriver, it's faster to walk in many cases. So the riverine idea is really good if you only have them move in one direction. So if they're always going downstream, it works. As long as nobody ever goes in the other direction, it works. Except they always go in the other direction. So it's just, it's just not going to work in the article that will give the documentation on that. Yeah, well, the way... The way publication work, you won't see it for a year, but you know, somewhere a year from now. <laughs> okay. Can, can you tell us where this will be published? Uh, no, because it hasn't been accepted for publication. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, it I may not even be published ever. Oh, it'll be published, yeah. It, it's good enough research that it'll be published. I'll, you know, I, I know it will. I just don't know when. Can, can I give a multiple choice guess as to where it will be published? <laughs> my guess would be interpreter. That would be my guess of where it will okay. show up. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to guess too. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right now, that is the venue that is publishing this kind of material. It, it's all being funneled there. there. There doesn't really, as far as something publishing papers, uh, we really don't have another venue for that. Um, the Mormon Studies Review has gone into Mormon Studies, and so it's not the thing they are looking for. Uh, the uh, Journal of Book of Mormon Studies is heading more where the Book of Mormon Review is, uh, or Mormon Studies Review. Uh, so it's heading more, and there's, I suspect, less going to be showing up there. So most of these articles are going to show up in Interpreter. That's just the venue that's available. Is that a good or bad thing in your mind uh, that, you know, I know Maxwell Institute's not really interested in geography and, and things like that. And is that kind of the, uh, the nice thing of interpreter that it will still entertain those things? Yeah, I, it is absolutely imperative that we have a way to publish. We've got to have a way to get this material out because if you don't publish it, nobody can criticize it. You know, you've, you've got to get it out into the world so people can say, okay, yeah, that works or that doesn't work. Uh, and every once in a while, people will latch on to something they think works and I don't think so. But, you know, uh, you still have to get this stuff out there. The kinds of things that Maxwell Institute are doing, I think, are extremely valuable. I think they're publishing some really good stuff. It's just different. And so to say that, you know, there's a problem because there's two different ways to do it. No, there's two different... There's two different things that we're looking at, and you each have to have a way to, uh, to get the articles out that are within the purview of what you want. And the kinds of things they're looking at are very, very different. And because they're different, having two different venues makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I know one of the... Uh, I've, I've been in talks with some people from the Firm Foundation, and uh, one of the things they say is, we will talk about Mezzo, but Mezzo won't talk about us. <laughs> Would you entertain going to, like, the Firm Foundation conference? I know it's a big one. It's at the Salt Palace this year. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, if, if they were to give you an invitation, would that be something that you'd, you might be interested in? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right answer to that. Um, you know, the first answer would be, well, yeah, of course I would. The second answer is, no, I wouldn't because that isn't people that are interested in anything I have to say. You know, I, I don't want to go spend my time speaking to a crowd basically where the entire function is for them to disagree with me. Um, so, no, I have no interest in, in doing that kind of thing. There was a time when we actually had a small conference uh, where Mesoamerican people and Heartland people got together and we presented to each other. And um, 
and we never could come to much of an agreement. Uh, there was at least one time where it was sort of, okay, rather than just, you know, look at what we have, there was someone who said, well, let me look at these things that the Heartlander is using archaeology for. Let me look to see if they're actually viable. Uh, and then they weren't. Um, so the question becomes, you know, how, how much do you follow the thumper rule? You know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Um, it seems much more polite to allow them to, to do what they would like to do without having to turn around and, and say, you know, excuse me, here's how you get the archaeology wrong, the geology wrong, the topography wrong, the hydrology wrong, you know. It, it just doesn't seem productive. Um, and, and there are a lot of people who want to believe the Heartlander uh, concept, who have no idea about archaeology, geology, and don't care. Um, it, it's just, for those people, they found something and they're welcome to it. Uh, I guess I don't want to rain on their parade. Now, one of the things that I usually do at the beginning, but I forgot to do, um, but if, if we can do that now, let's talk a little bit about your background. You did mention you were an anthropologist, if I remember right. Anthropologist by training. I, I okay. did graduate work at the State University of New York at Albany. In, and I was the, the first student who had ever shown up there said I wanted to get a degree in ethno-history. And ethno-history is basically taking concepts of archaeology and history and moving them together and saying, I'm going to try to deal with history of people that kind of don't have a long written history. Okay. Uh, and a lot of that was because I got interested in Mesoamerica um, and, and was interested in their religious history and, uh, you know, the archaeology of the area. So I, I spent time studying that. Uh, I ended up only with a master's degree, so I don't have a Ph.D., um, I'm a master's degree too, so I, I like yeah, those people. Well, you know, I, 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 I got so you got your anthropology degree where? State University of New York, Albany. Okay, and then the ethno history is that what the master's degree ethno was? History. Yeah, that was In the same place. My, yeah, that, I mean that was what I was studying while I was there. So the degree is in archaeology, but my emphasis was you know ethno history, trying to figure out you know how to get history out of very few documents and, you know, really how to milk documents um, to be able to get the history behind them. So, for example, if you really want to know a lot about Aztec history, there are a few Aztec documents, but most of what we have uh, are Spanish documents who are telling us what they understood that the history was. And in a lot of cases, what you have to do is you really have to kind of combine all of these things and say, aha, here's where the themes are. You know, here's why I'm getting a pure Spanish interpretation that is different from what I'm getting from, you know, the natives. Uh, and I was doing all of that prior to the translation of the Maya glyphs. So I was central of Mexico, you know, trying to figure that out because that's where we had the texts. Uh, if I were doing it over again, I'd be a Mayanist because that's where we have the texts. <laughs> so, State University of New York, did you grow up there? No, I went. Th I, I did my undergraduate work at BYU. And, okay. Uh, I, I worked in the manuscripts department, and they had this big collection of Mesoamerican languages, and I ended up working in the manuscripts division, and the director says, here, why don't you try to put this together? And it was a visually uh, easily discerned set of documents. And I went up to the reading room once, and there's a great big cart that had all of these Mesoamerican documents on it. And I'm going, somebody's reading this stuff. Who is reading this? And uh, went over and talked to the guy who was, and it turned out to be Lyle Carmack, who is anthropologist, linguist, and at the time was at the State University of New York, Albany. And I said, I really want to do this stuff in graduate work. Where do I go to school? And he said, really, you've got four choices. Uh, University of Utah, UCLA, Tulane, and Albany. And he said, problem with the University of Utah, the guy you'd want to study with is getting ready to retire. We don't know if he's going to be replaced. 
maybe not. I asked UCLA and nobody ever wrote me back. Uh, there was another reason for not really uh, being interested in Tulane. That left me with Albany. And so I ended up at Albany. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, and it, it turned out to be a really good place for that. I mean, we had some really strong linguists at the time, uh, a couple of Mesoamericanists, and, and it was, for what I wanted to do, it was probably the best place in the country. Oh, good. And how did you end up in Albuquerque? Uh, well, after it turned out that I couldn't get a, a degree that would uh, feed my family, uh, we decided that <laughs> that having food on the table and a roof overhead was a high priority. And so I should probably work for a living. And I did. And at one point in time, my wife is we're back in Albany and had been there for any number of years. I can't remember how many, um, but you know, decade or more. Um, she was looking at the gloomy skies one time. She says, okay, I'm fed up with this. We're, I'm leaving and I'm moving West. If you'd like to come with me, you can. Um, and I said, well, okay. So I went to my bosses and told them that I was going to start looking for a job, you know, out West. And they said, well, why don't you keep working for us and just have a remote office? Oh. And I said, well, that would be wonderful. Uh, so I was the company's first remote employee. And, uh, basically I could live anywhere there was internet and an airport. And, uh, we looked around the West and the Northeast was too wet California was too expensive. Arizona is too hot. Utah had too many Mormons. So they came down to Perky. How nice. Plus, her sister was here at the time. So. <laughs> well, very good, very good. You mentioned Aztec uh, culture. Yes. Uh, I believe, if I remember right, Brian Stubbs, do I, do I have his name right? Yes. He's done some work on languages. Yes. Yeah, and say it again. Yudo-Aztecan. Yes. And so uh, so he's found some Semitic origins, can I say it that way, with Uto-Aztecan, which is not Mayan. Oh, no, it's <laughs> um, a very different, different language set. Yeah, and so I was wondering if you could comment on that. <laughs> briefly, briefly. Um, I'm not a fan. Um Oh, it is it is the best work that has been done and the only work that has ever been done that is that does the correct linguistic work to try to get sound changes. And so it looks the best of anything that's ever been done. I have some discomfort with some of the methodology. Um, I have some discomfort with the way. Um, he, he's developed certain explanations, data sets used. I have a big problem with the language group. Uh, the Udo Aztecan family includes uh, Paiute, Ute, um, you know, so it, it's a language group that is very much Western, you know, Western Rocky Mountains, Southwestern, and then moves down into. Uh, Mexico, and all of the indications are that it's not moving into Mexico until after the time of the Book of Mormon. So from everything I can tell about the Book of Mormon, no matter how good it looks, it's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, so that kind of leads me to wonder about the rest of it. Um, I, I know that uh, Stubbs does look at some evidence for Udo Aztec and being further south at an earlier time period. Um, I think that still makes it extremely difficult to figure out how that's, how any kind of uh, Semitic word, language change affects the entire group because you have to go way back into, uh, again, the origins of these languages to get them to spread through all of the families. And I think it's, it, it it does not impress me. Now, I'm not as good a linguist as I would need to be to be able to give you really good reasons. I can just say I, I, I don't think that works. Because the time period's off and the, and the location's time off? Period location, yeah. I think it's, a, it's really interesting stuff for the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And that and a few other things suggest to me that it may be it's too late. Maybe more artificial than 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 natural. Okay, and so the it, it developed too late. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying the time period is too late. You know, it's sort of like saying, um, I'm, I'm tracing the you know the early um, you know early development of the Spanish language. And I find a whole bunch that's related to Latin. Um, and so I then hypothesize that, you know, everything started when people came into Spain with that language. You know, it's just kind of the wrong place in the wrong time. Mm -hmm. um, the, the homeland of that language really does look more like the southwestern United States. And everything else that I can see of the culture, geography, everything else puts me down in Mesoamerica. So if I'm a Mesoamericanist, I have a really hard time dealing with that type of information. So it's really interesting, really tempting, but I can't accept it as much of a proof because based on everything else I've seen, it's in the wrong place in the wrong time. Okay. I um, was wondering if I could get your opinion on a couple other theories too. Oh, um, <laughs> Baja California. Baja. That's that's relatively close to Mesoamerica, sure. right? Oh yeah, it's, yeah. And plus, it's a it's a peninsula, it's sure. a narrow neck of land. Yeah, you can you can make a. I mean, geographically, and I've seen some good uh, you know agricultural information that mm -hmm. that may work. And so there's some there's some interesting strengths about it. It has one big drawback: nobody ever lived there. So I have a hard time putting Book of Mormon people and the populations and the, the movements of populations and the wars. I can't put it there because there's zero evidence archaeologically that that ever happened. So, yeah, geographically, it's a nice theory, but that goes back to what I said about geographies. The problem with geographies is everybody can come up with one. Once you have a geography, you have to go somewhere else to try and find out whether or not that geography actually works. And where do you go? Well, you go to the text and how well the text interacts with what we know of the culture at the time and in that place. And if they match, that's good. If they don't match, we're going, okay, that's a disqualification. So I think the fact that there were no good populations there, uh, I think that's a real drawback to that. Regardless Even if it was just 30 all, people that came? <laughs> I'm going with the Book of Mormon where you're talking about how many people are fighting. I mean, the fact is the Book of Mormon explains lots of cities and lots of big cities and lots of population, zero in Baja. Um, so, yeah, as a geography, really interesting. Um, as a correlation to the real world, do doesn't work. Doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. Well, and let me give you another one again because we've talked Heartlanders. Heartlanders will use the fact that there are the Adena and the Hopewell, and the time periods for the Adena and the Hopewell really seem to fit well with the uh, you know Jaredites and ne or Lamanites or Nephites, even Lamanites. Um, but there's a problem with that in the Book of Mormon. The Jaredites are always north, and there's only one Jaredite who ever has any interaction with a Book of Mormon person, and that's in the city of Zarahemla before Mosiah gets there. So by the time we get to the Book of Mormon period, the Jaredites are in the north. Mormon always talks about them being in the north. They're never down where everybody else is, and there's no interaction. So although the Adena and the Hopewell have a really good time frame, they're thoroughly intermixed, so much so that the modern archaeologists are beginning to say, yeah, there are two different peoples. They're not the Adena and the Hopewell. They're all the same people. It's just a different time period and the culture advanced. And you know they're in the same place at the same time. That's not what the Book of Mormon says. So... If you cherry pick the archaeology and don't look at what's actually happening, um, you know you can say Adina and Hopewell will match the Book of Mormon. If you actually look at the descriptions, they don't fit the way it works in the text. 
And so again, I would say, okay, yeah, regardless of what you do with geography, when you actually put people there and try and match it up with people, you can't make it work. Um, you know, Malaysia has some really interesting, you know, correlations. That's where I was going next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wrote a sort of review of that. I knew that, uh, yeah. Um, and, and although it's very interesting, it's, you know, geographically it's got some other problems. Uh, it doesn't have as many uh, sort of cultural because it does have cities and populations. Um, what you have is a very difficult time, and I think the worst of it is it's very difficult to explain the destruction in Third Nephi. Uh, we, we don't have any way of doing it. Mount uh, Krakatoa is there, but the island of Java is in between, and so Krakatoa at any tsunami that's going to hit is far enough away that Java is going to disperse it and it's not going to get up into the Malaysian Peninsula. So, yeah, there were a couple of other things where I was looking at it and the geography didn't seem to work. Interesting, because there are some cultural things that work better than, uh, than Mesoamerica. Uh, you know, you get elephants, that's kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, some of the other geography, and again, there's no way to explain Third Nephi. Uh, I don't think you can explain Third Nephi and Baja. I know that the Heartlands uh, try to explain Third Nephi with the Madrid Fault. Um, the problem with that is that's a fault and it creates an earthquake. Earthquakes are very quick. Uh, Jerry Grover's the best geologist on this one and has written about it. His book on the geology of the Book of Mormon is essential reading for people who really want to know stuff. Uh, and since he's a geologist, I'd say two-thirds of it is really dry. Um, which I would say to his face, and I, he would laugh and say, yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> Jerry is extremely self-aware. He knows this stuff. But you've got to have it in order to be able to get to the interesting parts. Uh, and as he points out, he says, the problem with the description in the Book of Mormon is they last for hours. Earthquakes are over quickly in minutes. Uh, so, yeah, you can have a terrible earthquake. And it talks about the shaking of the ground uh, in the Book of Mormon. But everything that's going to happen with the shaking around, it's minutes and it's over. You may get an aftershock, but, you know, we, we know earthquakes. We've been, you know, many people have been through earthquakes, and they're quick. Terrible, but quick. Uh, they don't last for hours on end, which is the, uh, the definition we get in the Book of Mormon. Uh, so as a geologist, he's looked at this and said, uh, yeah, it's got to be volcanic activity. And then he went one step further and he said, yeah, here's Mesoamerica. Here's how it's all laid out. Here's how the plates line up. Uh, and he identified a, uh, a candidate volcano that's known to have erupted uh, at the time period that the Book of Mormon says that it should have and would have had the destructive power that the Book of Mormon uh, relates. And then in addition to that, because of the way the plates sit down there, he says, why isn't Bountiful affected by this thing that's not all that far away? And he looks at the geography and the plates and he says, okay, here's why Bountiful survived and nothing else, you know, the other ones didn't. So, yeah, again, going back to the fact that you can get really detailed in Mesoamerica, you know, you could get explanations down to why didn't Bountiful get destroyed. You know, try that anywhere else. You know, you take any other geography for the Book of Mormon, you can't come close to to correlating details like that. And, and Mesoamerican's full of them. I'm trying to remember, Melee's kind of one of my favorites. Um, there was a tribe, I'm trying to remember, in Melee. Uh, the Karen. The Karen? Yeah, they've got, yeah, they've the got this story yeah, about like the Karen. gold book. Karen? Yeah, it looks yeah. like Karen, but I think it's Karen. At least we'll call it Karen, so we don't have to call them Karens. Yeah, so... Um, well, they've got the, the story about the gold book, I guess, which is kind of cool. But I, I swear, no, there was, a, there was another group called B'nai Manash, which sounds like Manasseh, that claimed oh, to be of Jewish uh, heritage. And I've, I've heard they were trying to do a DNA test on that. I don't, have you heard if that's been done? Never, or do yeah, you know? I don't know that one. I don't know that one. I mean, none of this surprises me because Jewish populations were dispersed and... You know, historically, they tried to stay together. 
um, you know, which is why you could have pogroms come and wipe them out because they were all in the same place. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, now, does it relate to the Book of Mormon? Probably not. At least not in any way I can imagine. Um, but the concept of you know Jews in di diaspora, uh, well known, and you know well known that as they spread out, and frankly any community tries to stay together. Um, there was a time period in the United States where we had a large uh, population of Hmong come in from Cambodia, and they all settled. Very, most of them, I won't say all, but you have a large Hmong settlement in. Is it Wisconsin or Minnesota? I think Minnesota, which is really surprising given the fact they come from a subtropical area and end up in <laughs> go to cold go Minnesota to frozen land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, all right. So, anything else on melee you'd like to add, or I, I think the only thing I mean, for as much as it's really interesting, the only time the church has ever come out and said anything about new about Book of Mormon geography is they have declared that it's in the New World. So the only time we have a church pronouncement excludes Malaysia. doesn't exclude anywhere else, but it would exclude Malaysia. So, you know, if I, if I go with church official statements, Malaysia is excluded. Okay. Have you followed the African theory very much? I, I think that one's probably the least scholarly of any that I know, but... Yeah, I think that's the right definition for it and the reason why I don't know too much about it. I, I think that's just a wonderful outlier. Oh, um, I wish it would include the uh, Lemba tribe, but it seems like it's more like Ethiopia and Nigeria because I'm like, Lemba, come on, you got to throw that in there. <laughs> I, I think it is, it's an example of the fact that pretty much everybody will try to find the Book of Mormon wherever they are related. I, I heard someone talking recently <laughs> and they said that somebody in the church had gone to a lot of return missionaries from various places in the New World, and they were asking the missionaries, um, you know, where do you think the Book of Mormon took place? And invariably, the most popular one was wherever they served. And, and I think that explains Africa. I think it explains, there's a really interesting Nephites in England, and I don't know more about that than... We have Nephites in England. And Wasn't I think that those, on the, on Amazon Prime, I think? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, it's... I think it was. Yeah. Whatever it is, everybody wants to find something connected to the Book of Mormon, and we want to be connected to it. And so I think there's this just natural attempt to say, okay, I'm going to try and find it so it connects to me. And so we get Africa and Malaysia and, you know, England and everywhere from South to North America. I, I know uh, I've had a couple people say um, that, you know, the, I don't know that this is a compliment per se, but the genius of the Book of Mormon is that it's so vague it could have taken place anywhere. So therefore it probably didn't take place anywhere. Uh, what do you say to that? I, I would say that that's in general sort of a good beginning point. And it goes back to what I was saying about geography. Everybody can come up with geography. You know, the geography is not going to tell us. The Book of Mormon is sufficiently vague that you can make up a geography to fit certain parts. Now, if you're really getting careful, you have to be much more detailed than most of them are. Most geographies get satisfied if they find seas and they find a narrow neck of land and somehow they can put Camorra in there and feel good about it. And if they do those things, you've got a geography. There are other parts of the geography that really matter and people don't spend time on them. And my litmus test when I go look at a geography, and, and my personal philosophy is when I go look at anybody else's geography, the Malaysian, um, you know, Baja, uh, Heartland, Great Lakes, any of those, the way I approach it is I will accept their assumptions and try to find out how well it works, basically accepting their assumptions. So I don't want to go to it saying, well, I know you're wrong. Let me find out why. You know, maybe you're right. Let me see if you are. That, that's the approach I like to take with it. 
And one of my litmus tests is Manti, because Manti is really important and nobody cares about it. So you never build a geography trying to figure out Manti. But Manti has to be near the source of the Sidon. It has to be in a mountain pass that is a critical um, and most typical, most common path between Lamanites and Nephites. So it's got to be hard to get around any other area, but easy to go through this pass at Manti, because Manti is built there to be a defensive fortification. And there has to be a valley off to the east of it. Um, you know, those are really specific things about Manti. And people don't pay attention to them. And so you go look at it and you say, you know, okay, tell me about Manti. You know, where are the mountains? Where are the hills? What's its relationship uh, to the Sidon? And, uh, you know, particularly why is it a defensive position? Um, and you can't find it because they build the geography based on the big things, not the details that you have in the Book of Mormon. Now, the obvious question is, can I find that in Mesoamerica? The answer is yes, of course. Um, but other places I don't see it. And again, that's one of the reasons why I take Manti. It, it becomes a real quick thing for me to say, okay, yeah, how does Manti fit? Um, and if you don't fit Manti, then I've got to wonder about the rest of the correlation. All right. One thing we haven't talked about is Middle Eastern geography. Are you... Are you comfortable? Is that is that in your wheelhouse that you'd like to talk about that? Like, how did Lehi get out of... Um... I'm comfortable talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, tell tell are, us more about that. I know, I know. Daniel Peterson has said like he's called Nahum a bullseye, and I know John Hamer has said, well, there's like three letters NHM. They're all over the Middle East. You could, you could put that anywhere. Yeah. Um, let Let's start with the Nahum Nahom thing. Um, there are three letters and. It's possible to have them in multiple places, and depending on the language you're in, it has different meanings. And so in the context where they found this altar that has the Nehem or Nahom on it, uh, it is most likely Nehem rather than Nahom. Nahom would be the way a Hebrew would fill in the vowels. Uh, Nehem would be the way a Southeastern uh, Arabian would fill in the vowels. Uh, in the Southeast Arabian, as I understand it, it refers to stone cutting uh, and a place where there were stone cutters. Uh, if you fill in the vowels more like the, the Hebrew would, you get the suffering and the grief, etc. And frankly, I think what we're seeing is a pun in the Book of Mormon um, because that is the, you know, the place where um, uh, Ishmael is buried. Now, bullseye maybe, well, if you remember a bullseye on any target, the bullseye is, is you know, maybe this big, and the target's maybe that big. But the bullseye isn't that big. It's not a very precise point. It, it, it's a range. So is it a bullseye? Yeah, within the range, it's a bullseye. Uh, now, why is it a bullseye in the range? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One of them is where it's located. Uh, They've done a lot of work to trace back the tribal name, and they find out that this is a tribal name. It's been there forever. The Nicomites uh, have been here for a very, very long time. Uh, so as far as the name being appropriate to that specific location, it goes back to Book of Mormon times. The altar puts it in Book of Mormon times. So time frame fits. Now, how about the location? You know, is it a bullseye to find that location if you could find maybe another location somewhere else? Well, the answer is no, because this is a specific location, and they talk about the Book of Mormon, where they are making, <coughs> excuse me, in this area, a turn off of the common route, which would have been, um, uh, oh, why am I forgetting? The Frankincense Trail. The Frankincense Trail, thank you. I find the older I get, the harder it is to recall words when I really need them. Um, so <laughs> yeah, they're following Frankincense Trail, but there's a point where it turns off and they go mostly eastward. Right. There is a trail there. Uh, there. That is another way to do it. It's much more dangerous. It's not nearly as uh, you know safe or as good. 
but it'll get you where you're going. But it passes, it starts right at this area. Well, it, the Book of Mormon says at this area where we've gotten him, you're making this change, and that's where this location is on the map. So yeah, is it a bullseye? Well, the Book of Mormon says you're going in a certain direction, you're making a change at this location that is a place called Nahom, and that's where you're turning east, and the information about this tribal land of Nahem is right where that happens and turns east. Well, okay, that's a pretty good bullseye. You know, it's not just the name. It's where the name is. It's the name is there in location to where they're making the turn and that, you know, connection of what happened there. Uh, what's happened more recently is Neil Rapley of uh, Book of Mormon Central has been doing some research and happened to find out that there are burial sites there and that there are multiple people named Ishmael that are buried there. Now, absolute certain... <laughs> that we cannot say that Book of Mormon Ishmael was buried there. You know, that's not what he is saying. He would deny that as well. Ishmael was a pretty common name. It was even, a common name. Even with Isaac and Ishmael, you know, the Absolutely. Arabs and the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the point isn't that the Ishmael that we want is buried there. Right. It's that this is not a common name in that area, and it indicates that this is a place where other foreigners would be coming through, and if someone died they could be buried there. And so the idea that this is a stopping place for non-locals uh, that might die and be buried there, that's what's interesting uh, because that fits the context. Now, can we do any better than that? Doubtful. But when you look at the specific location and the time period and the correlation um, you know, to that specific point in time period, that's about as good as you're gonna get uh, you know, anywhere. Um, I mean, obviously, the Book of Mormon says, you know, Jerusalem, and we know where Jerusalem was, but saying that something was in Jerusalem is hardly a bullseye. Um, you know, that's one that you, bullseye where you can, you know, paint the arrow and paint the bullseye around here because, yeah, yeah, everybody knows that. Uh, but this one, to find that kind of correlation, um, yeah, it's not as easy as saying there's only three letters and you can find them anywhere. Those, those three letters have a meaning, just like any other word, and those meanings are specific to that location, to a tribe in that place, to a name that goes back and fits in the geographical shift that the Book of Mormon indicates is happening at that point. That convergence of information says it's a bullseye, not just the name. Okay. And so, um, are you saying they turned east at Nahum, or, or that was just along yeah. the Frankincense Trail, and then they turned along later? Along Trail, they're coming down on the western coast of the peninsula, and then instead of going further south around the tip and then coming back up, they cut across east. Is that in Yemen? Pardon me? Is that in Yemen, approximately, that general area? Yes, I don't know the, or Oman. the modern location. I think you're heading in that direction, but... I mean, basically, you're going through the desolate quarter there, uh, so that's why it's not as popular. You're you're farther away from uh, from good watering holes. It's hotter. It's just a much more difficult slog to go through there. Uh, and historically, you know, there were uh, tribes in the area that might make it difficult for you to go. Uh, through that region. Um, there's a very interesting article that S. Kent Brown wrote a few years back where he talks about uh, the concept of sojourning. And he said that the way that term is used is sort of involuntary uh, servitude in a place. If you sojourned for a while, you were kind of stuck there because you needed to be stuck there. And his supposition is that as they make that turn, uh, there is some conflict with some of the peoples there, and the reason why you're eight years in a trip that should only take like three months uh, is because they've been sojourning uh, in some you know location there where they were kind of held captive, um, and then you know what they were doing, you know that all of that speculation, but it there that is an interesting explanation both for. Uh, you know, what's going to happen on that side, why it's dangerous, you know, why they don't want to have fires because they don't want people to come see them, uh, and then for the fact that it took eight years. 
to get across. You know, there, something happened that it took that amount of time. Okay. I know there are a couple of, of um, possible locations for Nephi's Harbor. Um, I think, and I always get these mixed up, the Ashtons have Korori and George Potter has Korkofut, or I might have that backwards, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't remember. I, I could look it up and find out, but yeah, it's there, there are two possibilities. They both have arguments for them. Um, I, I'm not sure that we could definitively say one or the other. Um, but the fact that you've got two possibilities that fit, you, even the fact that there's two of them gets very interesting, given the expectation that there should not have been any. Um, I mean, obviously, if you're going to find uh, a coastline, you might be able to launch a ship. But to be able to find the land bountiful, uh, you, you've just come through the Sinai Peninsula with all of the desert. And there wasn't a lot of expectation that there would have been... Um, anything that could be called bountiful. Well, there is. You know, we found that. Um, the rest of the arguments about what they found are, you know, how close is it to ore, how close is it to trees, and the Potter's, or Potter, um, Potter's hypothesis is more on the depth of the harbor, I think, uh, you know, more on the surrounding well, I know originally he found he had found iron ore there, and he thought it was a better thing. But I think the Ashtons found ore in their place as well, if I remember yes. right. Yeah. 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 So That's you don't have an opinion on who's got the better harbor? No, I really don't. Okay. No, I haven't spent enough time on that to worry about it. Okay. Too much time in Mesoamerica. <laughs> I, I've got plenty to do trying to figure out the the other things. That one I can leave to somebody else to argue about. You know, I know George Potter has said uh, he, he goes along with the 30 degrees south latitude in South America. Um, and I, I guess that's the last one we forgot to, to mention. Do you have oh, any yeah, comments south on America. that one? South America has the advantage of high civilizations, metalwork. Um, you can really make a lot of the cultural things work nicely. Uh, the real problem you have is geography. Uh, it's way too big. So you have to find some way to narrow it down. And the one really popular way of narrowing it down is to have uh, most of the Amazon basin be underwater. Right. In fact, I was just going to show you this book yeah, um, by Venice Pritis. Yep, that's it. What's the problem with this map? Yeah. You see the blue right in the middle of, the of blue. South America. There's a narrow neck of land right here. Yes, there is. Absolutely. The problem is with all that blue in between all the land, there That's were people the living there at the time they say that water was there. Yeah, it's off by, a, what, a million, a few million yeah. years? I can't remember. Yeah. So, you know, again, one of my, you know, you know quick things on the, Geography of the Book of Mormon is how well does it violate known principles? Yeah. <laughs> and if it's contrary to geology and known archaeology and known time, you know, anybody that tries to put something underwater when we know for a fact it wasn't underwater, they got to be wrong. So I'm not all that interested. Yeah. In I mean, it was, it, is, this, is this a true map for like a million years ago? Uh, yeah, I think a million years ago, I think that was. Yeah. Be. So I, to me, that's the biggest problem with it, too. Oh, but. yeah. I mean, you know, if you really want to go a few million years ago, I mean, we've got Lake Bonneville. Right. So, you know, <laughs> Rocky Mountains could have, they, they said the Manti, you know, that uh, Moroni came up into the Rocky Mountains. So maybe that's where it was. And while it was uh, Lake Bonneville, big ocean there. <laughs> well, there's another uh, one I heard of that had, um, that required that the Gulf of Mexico be elevated and dry so that the Nephites could get from Mesoamerica to Florida more easily uh, because they could kind of walk across because mm. it, you know, it wasn't sunken yet. Well, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, I can't remember where I heard that one, but you can tell how much attention I'm going to pay to it if it <laughs> you know, requires that you have dry land where we know there wasn't any. 
Well, and I am curious because I I need to talk to George again um, or somebody. Is this is this kind of a mainstream idea as far as South America is concerned, or do most people have the whole continent there? You know, I haven't spent enough time there to know. Um, you know, I've looked at a few of them. I just haven't seen any that that I've wanted to spend more time with. Uh, the couple I looked at did use that water. Mm-hmm. And so obviously I dismissed them pretty quickly. I don't even remember what how Potter reconciles that. Yeah, and I, I need to talk to him again. But uh, Yeah, I, I think I read through his stuff, but I read it so quickly that... Yeah, I, I, I've talked to George before, and it was mainly about the um, Nephi's Harbor. Um, we didn't get into South yeah. America at all. So. Yeah, that I, I really liked his book. I've quoted it for the old world. Um, I haven't quoted it for the new world. Won't. <laughs> yeah, well, we're in different areas, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, do you want to give us any final strengths or anything on Mezzo? That, that I've, I've, I've tried to hit you with every uh, everything I yeah, could, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I think the thing that I would like people to understand about Mesoamerica and the Book of Mormon is that it really does give us a cultural background that begins to explain the text rather than just have the text laid on top of it. So for most geographies, we're happy if we can lay the book down and say, see how this matches. But that doesn't help us understand why people do things. Um, for example, uh, we have the, you know, the great story of Ammon who comes to King Lamoni and, you know, he, he goes and stands before the king and the king's all dumbfounded for what Ammon has done. And he, he basically says to him, I'm not more than a man. And you go, okay, yeah, sure, he says that. And then you skip right by and you go, why in the world would he say that? You know, why is that something interesting? Well, he's being accused of being very godlike because he's done something nobody could do. And so they're looking at him, they're going, man, is this a god come down to earth? And he says, no, I'm not more than a man. Well, Mesoamerican has a class of deities that come down and operate on earth. And so it would have been a very interesting assumption for people at that time to say, oh man, he just performed a miracle. He must be a god. You know, realizing that these aren't people who believe in one God, but multiple. And so the first thing he has to say, say to them is, I'm not more than a man. You go back to uh, King Benjamin. King Benjamin gives this great sermon. At the very beginning of the sermon, he starts this long list of saying, here's what I'm not. Now we read through that and go, okay, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, I didn't make you slaves and I didn't overtax you and I didn't do this. We never ask the question of why in the world would he say that? You know, I did not come on to talk to you and begin saying, by the way, uh, I'm not a medical doctor. You know, I've never, uh, I'm not a veterinarian. I've never, you know, done an autopsy on a horse. Why would I tell you all of the things I've never done? Well, in the context of Mesoamerica, every one of those things is what a Mesoamerican king would have done. And so why does he say that? He's saying, I'm different. I'm not that kind of king. I'm a different kind of king. And therefore, you should look to your heavenly king as a different kind of king. And so once you have that context, you go, oh, that's why he did that. And those kinds of things pop up frequently in the Book of Mormon, where once you know what that culture is that's behind it, all of a sudden things are richer. It's not more true, but they're richer. And I think that's the reason why the Mesoamerican geography of the Book of Mormon is important, not because of the geography, but because of how it helps us understand the people in the text and why they do the things they do. Why do things happen at this time period? Why is this time period different from another? Uh, you know, why does, why, why does the Nephites end when they do? Um, go back to the other end of things with Nephi. Why do, um, why do the people immediately want a king, even though Nephi says, I don't want to be a king? Uh, 
Why do the people insist? Just so happens at that time period, that's right when kingship is becoming a really big thing in Mesoamerica. Everybody around them is doing it. It's sort of like, well, everybody else is doing it. I want a king too. And when you get that kind of set of things behind it, all of a sudden the Book of Mormon becomes more real to us. It's always true. It can become more real. Very good. Let me ask you this one last question, especially since we talked about uh, a million years ago. Um, are you a young Earth guy or an old Earth no. guy? Old Earth. Old Earth. <laughs> old Earth. And, so what and, would you say, uh, let me also ask about evolution. Is, is that something you think is compatible with gospel principles? Sure. Sure. Okay. So what yeah, would you I'm, say to those who are like, Earth's only 6,000 years old, um, evolution's crap. Like, what would you say to that? I would use the thumper rule. The thumper Not rule? Say anything. The thumper rule, yeah. Don't say anything if you can't say anything nice. Um, <laughs> I must be getting too old. People don't know the thumper rule out of Bambi anymore. Um, but yeah. Um, People who firmly believe that really want to believe that, and if evidence could convince them, they would be convinced. So they're not interested in anything that I would say to them. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, bless you for your belief. We disagree. Now, can I say that there is, you know, reason for my disagreement? Yeah. Um, can I point to uh, time periods, in, you know, not too long after Joseph Smith, where the brethren were speculating uh, on the earth being hundreds of thousands of years old. Yeah, that, that happened. Um, you know, they were conservative by modern, uh, modern timing. Right. <laughs> but for their time, this was expansive. They're, yeah, they were saying, oh, yeah, the earth is really, really old. Hundreds of thousands of years yeah, old. Yeah, it's not 6,000 years old, yeah. No, 6,000, no, definitely not 6,000. Um, you know, there there is, you know, obviously no scientific evidence that would allow us to have a 6,000-year-old Earth. Um, there's just nothing that we know about the way science, any of the sciences work, that would allow that. Um, you know, too many things can be dated to older than 6,000 years, so... Um, yeah, from a scientific standpoint, no. It, it is purely a choice based on some religious assumptions that I think, uh, yeah, I know where the cultural background of those assumptions came from. Um, and I don't think they hold true, and I don't think there's anything in the gospel that requires me to believe those things. Um, right now, Ben Spackman is doing the best research on the church and its relationship to evolution. I'm um, of a generation that um, grew up with Joseph Fielding Smith's God is Origin and Destiny, which was adamantly, you know, anti-evolution. And, and I grew up believing that I wasn't allowed to believe in evolution because of that book. And it wasn't until later that I found out that um, you know, James Talmadge and B.H. Roberts vehemently disagreed with him and would follow each other around to conferences so that they could contradict each other. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with Talmadge and B.H. Roberts and saying that Joseph Fielding Smith was his opinion. I like their opinion better, yeah. especially yeah. since Talmadge was a geologist. I think he knew. So, yeah. Do you have an explanation for Adam and Eve? Did they live 6,000 years ago and then they had pre, you know, Neanderthals and whatever? Uh, do you have a... I, I don't think Adam and Eve... I don't know how to deal with a specific Adam and Eve at a specific time. Um, it certainly wasn't 6,000 years ago because we know there were other people around. Um, we certainly know that the story of Adam and Eve is highly symbolic and intended to be highly symbolic. Um, it's not intended to be a history book. And I'll tell classes that I'll teach that, you know, talk about, you know, well, this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. 
I'll remind them about who was holding the tape recorder at the time. <laughs> you know, you don't have it. How did you get this conversation? How do you know that's exactly what happened? Well, we have it written down from what people said about it long time later, when they're having a different reason for writing. Uh, so like I said about Nephi, uh, when Nephi's writing on the small plates, he has a very different reason for writing than he did when he was on the large plates. And we don't have what he wrote on the large plates. But you have to go with you know what the, the function is. Um, I, I think the story of Adam and Eve is highly symbolic, intended to be highly symbolic. And how it fits into actual history, I, I don't think we have that information. Um, my personal guess is you know, as I try to figure out the difference between what the the brethren have firmly stated, which is what the nature of man is, human, I should say, um, you know, what what is the nature of a human? Their definition is theological. It's the spirit of God that's in them. So that tells me that it isn't the physical body that makes a difference. There's a whole kinds of things that don't make a difference. It's at what point in time did spirit children enter into those bodies? You know, that's when we start humanity. When that started in the historical process of evolution, I really don't know. Um, and, and there's lots of, you know, complications in that. Um, we know that Neanderthal, for example, we, we don't, we aren't Neanderthal. We know they're before us. And again, going back to dating, we know that that dates a long time before um, you know, most of the Cro-Magnon people are coming up and, and mixing with them, with, you know, where we have modern humans. Um, but the, the Neanderthal had culture, at least incipient culture. They took care of their wounded. Um, there, there's a, um, there was a bone found where there was a broken leg bone, and it was healed. Well, you can't do that unless somebody's going to bring you food and take care of you which means you have to have some unit that will care for you. You know, if, a, if you have an animal that gets a broken leg out in the wild, what happens? They die. You know, they don't live long enough for it to heal because they don't have a culture that will make sure that they're taken care of. The Neanderthal did. Neanderthal appear to have had religion. Um, one Neanderthal burial was found with a shaman's bag uh, that indicated that they had a, a shamanic religion. Uh, there's evidence of flowers that um, that were buried with some of the Neanderthal. So, yeah, there's indication that even concepts of religion go way back. So, you know, again, if I'm going to mix all of that up together, I, I go with, you know, the book of Abraham that where it says, you know, if there's two things, there's one higher than lower, and he indicates that for humanity there's, you know, one higher and one lower, and God's at the top. I think there's some infinite higher and lower where God said, this is the point where you're capable of becoming like gods. You are now children of Adam. I think that's the dividing line. I think right below that line, for whatever reason that couldn't become like God but could still be exalted, God exalts them to the highest position they could be, perhaps Neanderthal, perhaps somebody else. Don't know. Um, but I don't think dogs and cats could ever become as God is. But I think they had a spirit, and I think God, you know, sort of elevated that pre-existing spirit to the best it could be. Um, so I think, you know, theologically, that's where I would go with it. Great. Well, I've kept you a long time. Is there anything else you want to share before I let you go? I think we better not, because if I try another subject, we're going to keep going for another hour. <laughs> All right. Well, Brant Gardner, I really appreciate you being here on Gospel Tangents. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Brant Gardner. Brant, thank you so much for talking to me about the Mesoamerican theory um, and critiquing the other theories. I thought that was, that was a lot of fun. So thanks a lot. Hopefully, get to see you back when you're back in Utah. In our next conversation, I'm excited to introduce Dr. John Lefkren. He worked with John Pratt on the first vision, and they dated it to March 26, 1820. And uh, John kind of confirmed it with weather records, and we'll learn a little bit more about that. The Surgeon General has 14 surgeons 
around the country giving him lots and lots of data. And nobody's ever done this before. And he doesn't know, what do I do? And so in um, July 1820, the newspaper in the Washington Inquirer prints the first weather report in history. <laughs> and he says, I don't know why I've done this, but maybe somebody would like to look at it later on. And so in this printing of the first ever national weather report, we have the first vision. <laughs> Can you believe that? If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.